Welcome to The Accelerators. Here for you are a series of tried and tested and proven real-world ideas to help you create and enjoy a business and a life of choice. The Accelerators, because success loves speed. And now we come to the guest interview of the month, and our guest is Gary LaBoff. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Gary LaBoff is a world-class business coach and sports psychologist, bridging two distinct, hugely demanding arenas with a mutual hunger for success. Gary provides a unique insight into the tools of achievement and has produced outstanding results in both fields. He has extensive media experience, offering expert comment on BBC, ITN and Channel 4 News. Gary's work also formed a centrepiece of BBC's groundbreaking series, The Challenge. His first book, Dare, was published in 2006. Gary's clients range from chief executives to factory workers, premiership footballers to amateur golfers. At a time when individuals find themselves under increasing pressure to deliver world-class performance, external assistance is often required. Steeped in the coaching, personal development and training environment, Gary's attitude really is refreshing. Instead of taking a consultancy approach, bringing tailor-made solutions to client issues, Gary's reputation is founded on creativity and innovation, designing fresh solutions to solve real problems. So, let's go and hear the interview now. Gary, hello to you, and thank you very much indeed for appearing on The Achiever's Edge. How's life with you at the moment? Very good, Peter, very good. Many thanks for having me on. Delighted. Now, I know you've worked with people from all walks of life, from homemakers to managing directors, TV presenters, engineers, pop singers, footballers, and at the heart of your coaching is a fundamental belief. What is it, and how does it change people? My fundamental belief is that everybody has something they were put on this earth to do, at which they will excel if they can find what it is. And, you know, I had a book out and during the course of many interviews, most of which seemed to be with Radio Ireland for some reason or another, I was asked, are you on a mission? And I've never really thought about it, on a crusade. I very much am. For me, there were far too many people walking around living a grey existence, simply getting through life because they don't really have any sense of focus or energy because they've never found out where it is they're meant to be heading. So for me, it's all about tapping people in to what they are truly connected to in order to, as it were, get the lifeblood, the juice flowing. And how do you actually do that with somebody? It very much depends on what the individual needs. For me, and I'm very critical of life coaching, both in the book and elsewhere, life coaches tend to go in with a a set of techniques or tools that they are determined to do no matter what. It's a bit like some management consultants I'm sure we could both think of. That for me doesn't work. Yes, I have literally hundreds of alternatives at my disposal, at my fingertips, but actually none of that is effective unless you are truly listening to what it is that the individual in front of you needs. You are understanding perhaps what the barriers are in their way and then going from there, you are prepared to apply specifically what they need, not what it is that you customarily do. I understand that. Thinking about your website, which is brilliant, by the way, and we'll mention that later. Many thanks. I know there's a testimonial on there about some work you did with a group of factory workers. Could we use that as an example then, and you can explain what the problem was and how you helped them solve it or you solved it all? I think it's probably the best example of what I do. My work with companies. I work at variance to most coaches who tend to prefer to work with executives. I actually don't. In my view, there are enough people who talk the executive language, and yes, I can do that. But I actually prefer to work with people lower down the corporate hierarchy, because to me, this is where the true unleashed potential is at the top. 
you've got a bunch of, in my experience, very talented individuals who do know what it is that they're meant to be doing with their lives and they have the skills to bring it about. Now, lower down the hierarchy is where all the unfulfilled potential is, where all the unexploited energy is. And so what I did, I was called into Unilever and I spent a year there in Liverpool working in a factory. It was incredibly forward-thinking of their HR director to bring me in because he knew that at the core of my philosophy is that every single thought that you have is directing you somewhere in your life, positively or negatively. And every day, the way that you think, uh, where excellence is not something you wear for a day, it becomes a way of life. Now, most people down the corporate hierarchy don't believe they have a choice. They believe that their destiny is out of their hands, and in a sense, they are simply there to do a job of work. What Unilever wanted me to remind them is that they have entire total responsibility for every element of their lives in work and out of work every day. Now, I, of course, have an advantage in that I work in the premiership. I work with um, phenomenal golfers. I work with international rugby stars. And, of course, this gives me a place of connection with these people, which is harder for an average corporate coach who simply works in companies. So they can ask me what goes on you know, in premiership dressing rooms. So, so that's a very good way of breaking the ice. Indeed. But in the same token, I'm not interested in, and this was a two-day course, in just talking for two days. That, that would bore me stupid. So it's, it's a very interactive course. I was getting them, for example, I bring golf clubs in, and they get to putt with their eyes closed. They get to catch balls with their eyes closed. The, the point of that is that they realize that if they can do that, what else can they do? And these are people who, frankly, do not have world-class hand-eye coordination or motor skills. So it's about opening them up in a very gentle way to their own unfulfilled potential and getting them to realize that every moment of every day they do choose. They can either choose to be ineffective or they can choose to be effective. They can choose simply to do what they're told or they can choose to think for themselves. So was at the core of the problem, without giving away any secrets, what was it that was really the problem that these people were running into that we can use as the example analogy, if you like? Well, fundamentally, people don't believe they are responsible for what happens to them. Got you. We live in an age in which it is very easy to give your power away. Give your power away to the state, give your power away to your employer, give your power away to your partner. Once you realize that actually you have the ability to take your power back by choosing to do so, and it is a choice and it is a commitment, you get a real sense of your own direction and of your own unfulfilled potential, and you have the chance to reclaim responsibility for your own destiny. And in Unilever's case, what they had was they had a very significant absenteeism problem. They had problems with attitude. And it was phenomenal in, in two days. Well, what they gave me were groups of 14 people. And the courses were generally on Thursday and Friday. And we lost count of the number of managers who would send emails to the HR guy on a Monday and go, I don't know what you've done to these people. But people who've been awkward and difficult and stubborn and bolshy for years have come into work saying, okay. I get it. What do you want me to do? And we didn't talk about work. This is one of the most interesting aspects of the course. Work at a factory level is a dangerous subject because actually they don't feel they have responsibility for themselves. Work would come into the equation, but only in passing during the two days. It was actually about getting them to actually import life skills into their being, perhaps for the first time in many, many years. They got them to realise, well, in that case, it does apply to work. I've just chosen to believe it doesn't. Now, I've got two similar questions, but I know you'll pull out other information on these because there are other things that you've done. You were on TV with the BBC programme, The Challenge, 
and you only had three sessions. I know this was a very short time to prepare the competitors. Can you tell me more about what the challenge was, and what on earth did you do for these people that got them to be so successful? Yes, the challenge was quite something in many ways. What the BBC decided to do was enter eight individuals in the world's toughest sports events. And when I say tough, I mean, it makes the Premiership look like a piece of cake. They sent somebody up Everest. There was, um, it's called the Mild 7 Challenge, which is the craziest race I've ever heard of. Essentially, on day one, you climb a mountain, you abseil down a mountain, you get on a bike, you do that for 15 kilometers, then you get in a boat and you row for 10 kilometers, then you go for a five-mile run at the end. That's just day one of four days in 110 degrees heat and 100% humidity. Frankly, I don't know how people don't die doing these things. And then there was the transatlantic yacht race. There were a number of very, very severe challenges. And just to add a little further spice, the runners weren't allowed to run before the sailors had never sailed. So they made it about as difficult as they could. Didn't they just? And about two months before the series started, I got a call. I was actually um, on my way up to Bolton, of all places. And I got a call saying, would you like to do this series? And I'm game for anything. So I said, yes, thinking that I could ring the British Olympic Association and get some information on, well, how do you cope with sleep deprivation? How do you cope with exhaustion? How do you cope with altitude, for example? And the head of the VOA just laughed at me. He said, well, there are no techniques. So I had three months to design a whole raft of ideas and tools which people could take away, whether it was up a mountain or at the end of a, in one case, a 56-mile marathon, double marathon, and actually use. The BBC, to make it even more interesting, gave me, as you said, only three sessions with each of them. Now, before I'm working with somebody who's going to go on the PGA Tour, you know, I want six months with them. So it's a pretty severe challenge. And what I did was I was very, very prescriptive, much more than I would normally have been. But there simply wasn't time to do the usual listening to their problems and then fitting a solution. I knew what they needed because I'd done the research. And I was very prescriptive about what I gave them. And the bottom line is, and even I was pretty surprised by this, that out of eight, we actually had two winners two winners, and another one broke a world record. I suppose, more importantly, everybody got back in one piece. But the challenge was quite something. It was an enormous undertaking. We went all around the world, and it was a massive success. It sounds fascinating, Gary, but what I want to drill down to is just give me some of the ideas you told them so that anyone listening to us now could go, wow, I can take that away, and I can use that in my life. Well, let's talk about... I had a footballer, a striker who had never run... Those of your listeners who know anything about football will know strikers don't do much running. They do short, sharp bursts of running, maybe 20, 30 yards. But the idea of a striker running 400 yards is pretty unusual. You just get them to run around the pitch once is a challenge. Well, this particular striker was entered into one of the world's toughest marathons, which was six marathons in five days. You know, one marathon wasn't enough. So it was five marathons and a double marathon. And he came to see me before leaving, and he was clearly in a bad way. He dawns on you too late to pull out just what you've let yourself in for. So I sat him down, and I came up with this idea that he could look at it two ways. So I said to him, okay, what will you gain if you succeed? And I wrote this up on a board. What will you gain if you succeed? And he thought about this for a couple of minutes. He said, well, if I succeed, I'll look great on TV. My children will be proud of me. I'll get to really believe in myself. In fact, you know what? I'll get to believe I could do anything. And we ended up with this long list of victories that he would be able to look back on and go, yeah, I can do that now, I can do that now. Then we constructed the second list. And the second list was, what will I lose if I fail? And he went pretty pale at this, because he realized, well, he'd look an idiot on national TV. 
everyone in the dressing room would know he'd failed and he'd be the butt of jokes for many years to come. He wouldn't be able to look his kids in the eye. He'd lose confidence in himself and so on. I could see this made a deep dent in him. He went out to Chile, which was where the mountains were going on. And he told me, he called me when he got back. He finished. He did exceptionally well. I think he came eighth or tenth, which was, it was an incredible achievement. And he said, well, what got me through was I woke up on the third day at four o'clock in the morning and I just couldn't go on. My body had given up on me. My legs were dead. My back ached. And I pulled out your list. And the one I went for, because there's always one that's more powerful, depending on your personality, was what will I lose if I fail? Yep. And he told me, he looked at that list and he just decided he wasn't having it. There was no way he was going to end up in a place where what it cost him to give up was too high. The right. price for failure was simply too great and he was determined to go on. And he said that was what got him through. And this works for people in life generally. If, if those of your listeners have a significant life challenge in front of them, I suggest they draw up these two lists. What will I gain if I succeed? Make it worth your while because there will always be pain before gain and the pain might be quite significant. The reward has to be great enough, otherwise you won't go through the barrier. On the other hand, what might work for you is, well, what would I lose if I fail? And you look at that list and you go, no, 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 I'm just not going there. I'm not having that. I don't care what it takes. I'm doing it. So what we're using here is the power of away motivation and the power of towards motivation and the individual finding out which one really works for them. Indeed, and both won't work. It generally, human beings float towards the shore of pain or pleasure. It tends to be one or the other. For high achievers, it's often pain. It's often the fear of failure that is greater for them, although fear of failure actually is a separate subject entirely. For a smaller proportion of people, it's the possibility of success. It's the what do I gain? But of course, financial rewards, and this is why it's, when I work with salesmen, what will I gain if I succeed is much more powerful because frankly, you know, they want the commission. Of course they do. And it's what they actually do with the commission once they've got it in their well, hands. Well, of course, that's absolutely right. It's not those little green notes we want. It's what we're going to do with them. It's the experiences that they open up for us that provide the real motivation. Now, Gary, I know you've been massively successful in the things that you've done in life, but I'm sure like most successful people, you've had some sort of failure or failures along the way. Can you tell us something about them and how you got through that situation? <laughs> it's always the way when you meet people who appear to have done a lot with their lives. Setbacks are part of the deal. I mean, I'll give you an example, which was I became a writer in 1986. I'd been selling computers for a few years, and I'd had enough of that. And I wrote off to a few magazines and didn't actually get very far at all. I got a column, I remember, in a startup computer magazine, which got me started. So I sent those columns around to a number of the national newspapers and magazines, and I got a call from Company Magazine. Company Magazine certainly was, at the time, the second largest women's magazine in the country. And they asked me to lunch. So I thought, great, I'm away here. And... I mean, I was very excited. I was looking forward to it for some weeks and, you know, got all spruced up. And I went into London, sat in a restaurant and sat and sat and sat and sat and sat. And after an hour and a half, I rang the editor who was meant to be coming to meet me. And she actually told me she had something more important to do. Oh, gosh. And it was quite a moment because, you know, for a lot of people, that would be a devastating setback. And I remember being angry, hurt for about an hour and then using it, and I was quite surprised in the way I used it, as a springboard to go forward, because for me it was much more, no, okay, if I can get past this, I'll get past anything. 
And within a few weeks, I remember I was sufficiently re-energized. Literally, you could do this in those days, 1986, 87. I burst into the office of the editor of the Daily Mail. It's all very different now. Yeah, they've got not only guards on the gate, but they've got guards on these people's offices. And I literally thrust in front of him a piece of writing that I'd done. And on the spot, he rang his features editor, told him to come up and meet me. So it is very much, I teach my clients over and over again that life is about perception. It's not what happens to you. It's how you perceive what has happened to you that makes all the difference. I'll give you an example. Obviously, this is my line of work. Imagine that, goodness knows, it's unlikely to happen. We had a national football team that was threatened with not qualifying for, let's say, a World Cup. And a lot of people in the game are very concerned about this. But there are two very, very diverse ways of looking at this. The one is, it's a disaster. We're going to lose all this money. We're going to lose our influence on the world footballing circuit. Now, there's another completely different way of looking at it, which actually is incredibly positive for the game. We've got the wrong manager in the post. The players need a wake-up call, and it's about time something like this happened. And it's how you look at this that generates your feeling towards yourself and your feeling about life. And the really important point is you choose this. You can choose your perception towards anything that would otherwise be regarded as positive or negative and choose to make it work for you. And this is something I work very, very hard at with all of my clients, because the more you make life work for you, of course, likely you are to get in the direction you're trying to go. So let's just widen this a second to leadership. Yeah. You obviously deal with lots of leaders and the impact that they have on their people. What do you see as, let's say, the three key traits of successful leaders? Leadership is... A very personal skill. I've never been a great believer that there's a a kind of bespoke formula for leaders. But in those, both in sport and in business, I've observed particularly standing out. The first, I think the most important characteristics is their ability to inspire those around them. And they do this by, certainly when I work with them, using what I call the golden rule of management, which for me is 10 pieces of encouragement to one of criticism. Virtually every business leader gets that the wrong way around. We seem to have been brought up as part of a generation that believes there is some virtue in criticism, that if you batter people for long enough, they will respond and they will get the message. It actually isn't true. What people become, and those of your listeners with children will really do need to hear this, your children will become the image that you present to them. If you tell your child that she isn't very bright or he isn't very bright, then in the end, that is what they will become. Ten pieces of encouragement to one piece of criticism. And the managers that do this, what they end up with is the team that becomes inspired by them walking into the room because they know that they are going to be praised for some reason or another. Now, it may be that uh, criticism is necessary from time to time, but if criticism is all that people hear, after a while they become demoralized and demotivated, and essentially they shrink. So the first trait for me of a really great manager is one who shows people how great they would become and then allows them to step into that place. Makes sense. I heard it once said as recognition equals repetition. Whatever you recognize in somebody is what they're going to repeat. Well, indeed. And, I mean, I would rather broaden this even beyond business and say that in life in general, if you look back on the people who you've walked through walls for and wonder why that is, you will get that actually they believed in you and they kept telling you that they believed in you even when you didn't believe in yourself. And the other traits? The the second one is clarity. I believe that managers need to be much, much clearer in themselves before they transmit their messages. In football, 
<laughs> I will go and work with the manager for two weeks before I'll go near the team because invariably teams that are struggling are being given mixed messages by their manager. Their manager is invariably under pressure himself, has lost the belief in his own ability and is transmitting that to the players. I, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that only 12% of what we say is what we say, mm. 58% is tone, and the rest is a variety of subliminal messages. Well, I need to be absolutely certain those subliminal messages are those that a manager wishes to transmit, because if they aren't, then you can say and say and say all you like, but what you're transmitting is something completely different. So clarity of communication, starting from a place of personal strength, for me, is something that cannot be hidden. You can see it very clearly in a manager when he's got it or he hasn't. And for the leader of a business to stand in that place, to be entirely strong in themselves, allows them to transmit all the right kind of messages, almost regardless of what they're saying. So clarity for me is a really vital characteristic. Makes sense. And the third one, Gary? The third one is calmness under pressure. I see far too much panicking, both in business and in sport. When things go wrong, people tend to be reactive. For managers, it's trying to avoid doing too much. We live in an age of firefighting, particularly in business, where there is so much on your plate each day that it is very hard to prioritize. So one of my favorite pieces of work with the leader of any organization, and indeed with the managers lower down the organization, is at the beginning of each day to get them to write down a list of five things they need to accomplish that day. That's five, not six, not seven, not eight, just five. We then look at that list and I'll go, if you complete that list of five, will you have had a good day? And if the answer is yes, we get on with it. And at the end of that five, they can pat themselves on the back and maybe do a six, maybe. But it could just be if you get those five done, having an even bigger list isn't the thing to do. Maybe at that point, it's time to communicate with your team. Maybe at that time, it's time to have some time to yourself. The idea that satisfaction and productivity is created by ticking off a list I don't have any belief in that at all. It's not effective. And frankly, all that happens is you're sitting in front of the TV later that night and you've drawn up another list for the next day, which is even longer. That makes so much sense, Gary. Well, look, we're coming right to the end of the interview now, at least for the first time on The Achiever's Edge. So I've got my classic final question I ask everybody, which is this. If you had one further piece of advice, and it isn't something we've covered already together, that you know would help anyone be more successful, what would it be? Find what you are connected to. Do not lie to yourself if you are going in the wrong direction. It is so easy to go with the flow, to keep going when we've all got bills and responsibilities, but essentially the dark hole that you're in will get deeper and deeper. Take the time to find what it is that you are connected to, whether it is business, whether it is people, whether it is music. Where is your passion? Get to the root of what your passion is, unleash it, and the life that is waiting for you to be lived will appear. Even if, when you do so, how do I get there from here seems to be an insurmountable article. There's an American writer called Joseph Campbell, whose philosophy was follow your bliss, and it's absolutely one that I believe in. Find what it is that lights you up from inside and allow that to be your guide through life. Gary LeBoff, what can I say? Some fantastic ideas, cleverly put and simply put, so anyone could take them away. Gary, I really appreciate you spending the time on The Achiever's Edge. It's been a great pleasure. So what can we take away from what Gary had to say? His first point was that everyone is here for a reason, so you and I have to know what our purpose is. Every thought we have is directing us in our lives. Excellent isn't something we wear for a day, it's for life. 
Most people, Gary stated, don't believe that they are responsible for what happens to them, and yet everyone always has a choice as to what they do and how they respond to anything that happens to them. The key is using that choice. You'll recall that when Gary talked about the football player who had to run six marathons in five days, he went through the process that he went through with the footballer, asking the questions, what will you gain if you succeed? What will you lose if you fail? Aren't those two great questions? And the fact that the footballer realised in the moment he even considered giving up that the price of failure was too great. It would certainly be worthwhile creating those lists for yourself whenever you're setting out to achieve anything. Then keep those lists with you, and whenever you think you may stumble, look at them again, and then, subject to your personality, take the power of either away or towards motivation, and realise that only action is the key. Setbacks are part of being a success. We can use them as a springboard to go forward. I enjoyed Gary's comments about leadership, particularly the idea of ten pieces of encouragement to every one of criticism. And his final point, find what you're connected to. Don't keep going with the flow if it's the wrong flow. Unleash your passion, follow your bliss, and do whatever lights you up from inside. If you've enjoyed our session today, why not head over to our website where we have loads of resources on product creation, on sales, on marketing, and of course, on personal success. That's at theaccelerators.club.com. I'll see you there.